Good morning. I was anticipating about 10 people today, honestly. But you guys are early risers, and we thank you for coming so bright and early. Must have had a lot of coffee this morning. I'm going to ask a question before I get started. How many people out here own horses or are horse lovers? About three or four. How many of you consider yourself experts on Lewis and Clark? Or Lewis and Clark fanatics or nuts? <laughs> Probably everybody in the room is. Yeah. Well, I got to keep my eye on you because you're always trying to trip me up, you fanatics. Anyway, um, people ask me, you're in business for 40 years. What, what's this about? Why Lewis and Clark? And the answer is real simple. I'm from Lewis and Clark County. I grew up there. We had our summer picnics at the gates of the mountains at a place called Camp Merriweather. I remember asking my father, What's a what's a Merryweather? <laughs> and then uh, my mom found affordable daycare at the Montana Historical Society. I lived not far away, and when I drove her uh, a little bit crazy on the summer vacations, she'd send me down to the local museum, and I'd wander through those halls and kind of soak up all that Lewis and Clark and Montana history, and it it really. Uh, drove a passion that's lasted my whole life. So I put a little plug in for the Historical Society here and thank them for putting this great session on. They do a great job, don't they? Just give them a little. And I, you know, I just, I just hope someday we, we can expand our facility at the in the hill. And I hope you, know, you listen to those Salish elders yesterday talk about the importance of their heritage and why it's so important to have that. Uh, and I look at our local legislators and go, why can't we build a better facility at Helena? Come on. So anyway, enough for political statements. Um, we have some candidates, and we, <laughs> we're just going to have to spend a little more money to, on history. So anyway, um, I guess the answer to people who ask me why Lewis and Clark, well, I just had no other choice. So with that, my, my purpose today is to share you this great American adventure story, and uh, some of this uh, you've probably heard, some of you probably haven't heard all of it, and specifically I'm going to talk about Lewis Clark at the Bitterroot, September 1805, and you know, they also returned back to St. Louis, so we're going to talk about July 1806 a little bit too. The underlying theme of my story is about three Actually, two unsung heroes. Let's see if I can get this thing to work. That's three Native American tribes that were so helpful on this trail between two rivers, the Missouri River and the Columbia drainage. And then there's about 80 Shoshone ponies, I call them, Spanish barb ponies, specifically what their, uh, what their breed is was and so these are the un unsung heroes I think the whole story changes without these two components the three tribes and the horses they might have had to turn around and go home maybe the United States doesn't get a foothold on the, on the Pacific Northwest maybe we're speaking Spanish right now or maybe we're addressing the Queen of England as, as subjects who knows what happens but these are the folks that made it 
made it happen through the mountains. I think it's good that we start in the present before we talk about the past. I think this really connects us. The archaeology done at Traveler's Rest State Park, that's on the north end of the, of the valley here, but Lolo, um, was done as recently as 2002. And they did some real interesting archaeology there. And I'm going to leave this as kind of a teaser because I'd like some of you to visit the park someday. But they found a pewter button that led to finding lead in a cook fire. Um, that lead was traced back to Kentucky, Olive Hill, Kentucky, where the Continental Army and Meriwether Lewis purchased lead, and uh, a blue trade bead, and the mercury. I think most of you have heard the story of the mercury, Dr. Rush's thunderbolts, thunderclappers. They were laxatives, and some of the men were being treated. And there was a large linear pit that was found out of the park, and it happened to have that mercury in there. So that's why we claim that this is the only archaeologically verified site on the entire trail. Now, there are other sites that are pretty positive, but they haven't gone through the scientific verification that Traveler's Rest has. Okay, so uh, to start the story of the trip through the Bitterroot, we really have to start in the Beaverhead. Because this is where we run out of river. Remember, this is a naval expedition. It's been going on since Pittsburgh. The keelboat took off from Pittsburgh, went down the Ohio River. The, the pirogues and the keelboat came all the way up the Missouri to Fort Mandan, and then canoes. But we run out of river about the time we get near Dillon, Montana, on today's Beaverhead River. Uh, at the time, it was Jefferson's River all the way. To the, to the divide. So you got Meriwether Lewis and three of his men up on Limhigh Pass, probably the most distressing moment of the expedition. You see they'd gone a thousand miles, they'd seen signs of Indians, they'd seen signs of horses, but they weren't able to have any direct contact. So they're out of river, they're up on top of the mountain, it's August, the days are getting shorter, the nights are getting colder, there's snow in the mountains everywhere you look. We were kind of in a mini ice age, glacial age at that time. So in August, there's snow everywhere. And uh, this has got to be pretty disheartening for, for Meriwether and his crew. Clark's back down on the river, dragging his canoes up as far as they can get with about 10,000 pounds of cargo. So, fortune changes the next day. You know the story, Lewis meets Kamiwe, he gets heartily tired of the national hug. That's the national hug here is Kamiwe and Lewis hugging. But they sit down, smoke the pipe, Lewis convinces uh, Kamiwe to come back with some of his people onto the Montana side. Remember, this is the continental divide here, Lemhi Pass. This is the edge of Louisiana, it's the end of the road. But orders from headquarters, President Jefferson are, you got to keep going to the Pacific. So that's critical. That's why they had to find horses to get through these mountains. Otherwise, they could have turned around and come home. So Camille Wake comes back into the Montana side. They meet up with uh, Captain Clark and the rest of the men, and they have this reunion. Probably the biggest coincidence in, in American history. Sacagawea is related, not only related, but the brother of 
sister of Camille. Brother and sister, they recognize each other. So here's a little sharp note, uh, Sacagaweas, if you prefer Sacagawea, I'll, I'll go with you on that too. But they, they meet each other and here's a little sharp note going, hey boss, I think, I think these people know each other. <laughs> okay, so their good fortune starts happening. And good fortune happens in threes sometimes. So I think it's important to realize what tribes are going to run run into along this, this this trail between two rivers. So first it's the Shoshones that they call the snakes. And this is clearly in, clearly in the diaries. The, the Salish are probably the most over-named people in Lewis and Clark's diaries. They're called the Utlashutes. There's a long story behind that. I can't get into it today. The Tushapas, and that might be the Shoshone name for the Salish. And then a lot is the Flatheads. They also were called the Lost, lost Tribe of Welshmen. They supposedly had a, a handsome people with lighter skin. So they were looking for this mythical Lost Tribe of Welshmen. And they thought maybe the Salish were it. But uh, again, then the Nez Perce that were on the Idaho side, the Lolo Pass, um, they rescue them when they, when they get over the pass. So, Without those three t tribes, again, the story might be completely different. There's a fourth gift, and this, this gentleman is old Toby. He's a Shoshone. He was uh, delivered to him from Kamiyaway. He helped him do a reconnaissance on the Salmon River. There was this hope that this Northwest Passage was, was still in existence. So when they got down to the bottom of Limhigh Pass, that's that was called the Lewis River. And Lewis River cuts through central Idaho. It's now the Salmon, the river of no return. Camilleway tells them, hey, you just can't get through there. The walls are too steep, the waters are too rough, and about half the men couldn't swim. They did a reconnaissance anyway, <coughs> and Clark decides, with uh, old Toby's help, that they're going to have to come into the Bitterroot. They have to go north with the horses. They can't take the water route. So that whole myth of the Northwest Passage is, is gone, it's dead now. Well, this is Lewis's trade strategy, and he used this with most of the, the native tribes. And um, these are some of his quotes that I throw up there, you can read on your own. But there was really three things in every message he gave to the natives. One, we're here as friends, but we're, there's a new sheriff in town, and we're strong. We're not French, we're not Spanish, we're not British, we're the United States of America, and don't mess with us. <coughs> Second thing, he says, we're here in friendship, we want to trade. In fact, he would bring out these, these peace medals and give them to the chiefs. Um, and I, I can pass these around after the session, but there, there's a picture of President Jefferson on the front, and then a handshake on the back with a hatchet and a peace pipe. So anyway, uh, the third thing he says is we've got to all live in peace together, the whites and the reds. So we want you folks to get along with the Blackfeet, get along with what the Crow, what other tribes there are out there. So uh, the other thing he does is follow up with a, with a, a demonstration with, with this air gun. It's a repeating rifle. It'd be like a semi-automatic weapon by the day standards. It was pretty amazing. 
the repeated, I mean, no gun was a repeating rifle. The Shoshone, the Salish, the Nez Perce had all been driven into the mountains by those strong Blackfeet that had guns. They had been trading with the Hudson Bay Company for years. So anybody that could come and bring guns was a welcome sight. And I think that was the key leverage that Lewis used to be able to get their most valuable property, these, these horses. It was guns. All this other stuff. I mean, if I'm Kamiyawait and I'm listening to Lewis go, the great chief consume you as the fire consumes the grass on the plains. Well, come on. I mean, what kind of talk is that? So I don't think the, the chiefs really understood what they were saying. Remember, they were interpreting from English to French to Hadatsa to whatever language. There was a four to five different language translation. So I'm just thinking, a, 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 thank goodness, a lot was lost in the translation. <laughs> So I think Lewis' diplomacy was real poor. I guess you negotiate from a position of strength. Okay, so we got 38 ponies, one mule. Yes, one mule. Lewis's greatest acquisition, one mule. Uh, carried twice as much. 7,000 pounds, you got 33 explorers. That includes Sacagawea, her baby, and, and uh, York, and then uh, three major passes to cover. Lemhi Pass the, down Beaverhead wasn't too tough of a pass, didn't have any problems. In fact, they went over it several times. But, as Ted will tell you soon, um, they were in for it on the next pass. Uh, the Shoshone ponies are kind of an interesting breed. They, they originated out of the uh, deserts of North Africa. They, they got to Europe through the Moors when they invaded Spain about 700 AD. And uh, they were brought over here in ship holds in slings. Columbus actually brought, on a second voyage, brought horses over. They established horse ranches in Haiti, Cuba, and uh, then Mexico, and later the, the American Southwest. And these guys thrive. Interesting thing is they're small. They are ponies. And they actually have one less vertebrae than today's horse that we're, we're familiar with. So they, they probably could carry less. Lewis originally thought they could get away with about 20 horses, but he soon changed that to 33, one for each man, and then he ends up with 38 and one mule. So he has a little extra. Of course, they need saddles and ropes. I mean, a horse isn't any good without saddles and ropes. Some of those were made by the men. Some of those were used from the, the naval uh, piece of the expedition, but they traded for ropes. Most of the trade goods were knives and, and pieces of clothing. Remember, they were traveling on this credit that they were going to bring back guns. Okay, so a few knives seemed to get the job done. This is how the uh, ponies got up here. And I, I think, how many people think that the horse is native to North America? What? The horse is native to North America. It's kind of a trick question. Yeah. It was at one time. Thank you. It was at one time. About, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, they went extinct. They probably hunted out by the native people. Um, some people think there was some cataclysmic event that got them. But fortunately, they evolved over in the steppes of Russia, North Africa, other places. So uh, we were able to bring horses back. The Spanish bought them back. 
And then they migrated up, probably through a, a thievery network. Really not a trade network, I'd say it was more of a thievery network. The Shoshone's got them around 1700. So just think about that, it's only 100 years before Lewis and Clark. This is a fairly new technology that these people are experiencing. So, uh, you know, everybody by about 1750, 1770, before the American Revolution, all the tribes had horses. This is Ted's part, I'm not gonna slip into it, but this is how they got into the bedroom. They had to slip and slide their way in through snow, and I, I think the, the trick here is that this was a cold, wet, tired, hungry bunch. Food was scarce, they were, they weren't, there weren't many deer, there was no bison anymore. Um, they were cold and they were hungry. And the entire trip to the Bitterroot was really wet in September 1805. And I would relate it to maybe how, what we see as an October nowadays. It seems like everything's about a month off. They dropped down into the off, off uh, Lost Pass and into the run into the Salish people. And uh, thank goodness they did. And the Salish had a debate on what to do with these folks. There was a concern about what they brought and what they meant. There was a debate about whether or not they should wipe them out. But they turned around and did the, the, the right thing and they let them, not only let, let them through, they helped them. They actually gave them, depends on whose journals you read, 11 or 12 more horses. Yeah, and that's how they got up to the 38 or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and they were, they were really intrigued with, with York, this black man with black skin, big medicine. And I think they also were, uh, there was Sacagawea, baby, this isn't a war party. Um, let's, let's let them through. So up the better would they go, and this is one of Clark's beautiful maps. It's, the first thing I'd tell you is there's tick marks on the edges of each one of these maps. Ted could probably tell you that. So you can connect these maps. They're, I believe, six inches to the mile. They're two scale, and they're unbelievably accurate, and they're full of information. Um, and that's where we really started to get some, <coughs> some real scholarship when it comes to Lewis and Clark by studying these maps. You can see mountains covered with snow. Um, you even got a giant California condor in the, on the map. Actually, he made this map probably in Fort Clatsop up in the winter before, and so he uh, obviously was a little low on paper and decided to uh, draw a California condor in there. He called this valley, the Bitterroot Valley, the Horse Valley. He had some experiences with horse. They, they lost one of their horses down at a place we call Lost Horse now, down towards Darby. And then up towards Stevensville, they found two mirrors and a colt. M-E-A-R-S, mirrors. I think those are mares. But they, uh, they took those along with them as extras. So by the time they get to Traveler's Rest, they have 46 ponies, 46, from some of them from Horse Valley. Um, just to give you uh, references here, this map, 
This is this is Sula. This is Ross's hole. Okay, come up here. Here's here's Darby. Actually, this is improperly named according to Gary Moulton, I believe him. This is Rock Creek. This is Lake Lake Como right here. And then uh, up the road, we've got Hamilton, Victor. Here's Stevensville. They actually camp just a bit south of Stevensville. And then here's Florence. Lolo Traveler's Rest is right right off the map on the next, <laughs> the next map over. But these things are loaded with information. If you ever get a chance to look at Moulton's Atlas, it's worth the time. So other than trudging through rain and, and, and uh, poor weather, they uh, got to Traveler's Rest, and that's where Lewis decides to, to rest and to kind of prepare for this ongoing trip. They had to make a major decision here at Traveler's Rest. Do we go up the river? This was Clark's River at the time, not the Bitterroot River. Um, or do we go over the mountains, as old Toby's pointing to? Um, it seems maybe natural to, to go up the river. But there's no salmon in the river. The Salish people call it Timson Clay. Timson Clay. No salmon. No salmon to Lewis, and he's right, means there's some falls up the way, and those salmon can't get through. We just negotiated the Great Falls. It took a month. We're running out of time. We've got to get to the Pacific before the snows hit. So they decided to go through this gap in the mountains. Traveler's Rest got its name from Lewis because it reminded him of a place in South Carolina, a gap in the mountains through the Blue Ridge Mountains. The Virginians would come down through that gap into South Carolina. In fact, the Lewis family owned land in South Carolina. So he'd been on that route and he remembered it and they named it Traveler, he named it Traveler's Rest accordingly. He also finds out from Toby that the Great Falls is only four, Toby says four days, it's about a week away. That's a little bit optimistic. But it's like, what? We've gone this circuitous route for over two months, and you say the Great Falls is four days away? So anyway, he keeps that stored in his brain for the return trip. Over the past they go, Patrick Gass in his journals calls it those dismal, horrible mountains. This is Lolo Pass on the Lolo Trail into Idaho. And it's certainly the worst leg on the trip. Lost Trail was bad. This was even worse. They were starving. They had to kill five horses in September to continue uh, their protein diets. And uh, as, as Clark said, we're continually covered with snow. I've not been as wet and as cold in every part as I ever was in my life. So it was, uh, it was a miserable trip. And then they bounce into Weai Prairie in Idaho, and the Nez Pierce come to their rescue. And the Nez Perce, I, I think they had more affection to the Nez Perce than any tribe, maybe because they just spent more time with them. Remember, they only spent about two days with the Salish. They never saw them again. They only spent a couple of weeks with the Shoshone, and they never saw them again. But they saw the Nez Perce coming and going. The main thing Nez Perce did is take care of their ponies while they became a naval, naval expedition again and floated off to the Pacific. So off they go to the Pacific, 
and back they come and they have to negotiate that terrible pass again and they get turned back once, they turn around and stay with the Nez Perce a few more weeks and then try it again with five Nez Perce guides that found south facing slopes so the horses would have grass and they could camp and uh, they land in Traveler's Rest on June 30th. And I think it's important here that we remember, I mean, they've got to be tired. But um, Lewis is making all these observations of birds. We have over 130 species of birds identified at Traveler's Rest still today. And some of those birds up there, I won't get into them, but they are uh, no longer uh, in the Bitterroot Valley. The one bird that I would point out is the Lewis's woodpecker. That was a discovery found at Traveler's Rest and one of our uh, uh, birds that we still see there today. It's also July 1st, now think about this, flowers are in full bloom. So he's think, seeing things like the fairy slipper and stone crop and white clover and wild roses and that's called Bessie's crazy weed but, and the bitterroot flower. Montana State flower. July 1st. Now, when I go out and look at these wildflowers these days, it's between May 15th and June 1st. So that'll give you a little hint of the climate change. The other thing he does, and some of this was done in 1805, he identifies a new species of cottonwood called the black cottonwood that's specific to this, this area. The, the broadleaf cottonwood is over on the Missouri River on the east side of the divide. And there's a narrow leaf cottonwood too, so this is a third cottonwood and kind of with a medium sized leaf. So he's making all sorts of botany discoveries along the way too. I think I would have just been laying in the tent and maybe have a little extra snack now and then to refresh myself. The other significant thing they did in the Bitterroot Valley is they made the split here. Clark goes south down the Bitterroot with 50 horses and 23, 23 of the party. Uh, Lewis finds the shortcut. He's, he's got to. Jefferson's, that's one of the main orders, is to find the most direct practical route. So he's got to go and find the Great Falls. And they get all split up up from here, but somehow they, they manage to survive, but not without some trouble. There's a skirmish up in, in the, the Two Medicine where two Blackfeet Braves lose their lives, and then uh, Clark has all his horses stolen down near where, where Billings and Pompey's Pillar is. Um, so it, it was a kind of a messy exit from Montana. And uh, not so fond farewell, for sure. So uh, some of that has to do with the fact that they weren't able to formalize a relationship. They weren't able to look the crows in the eye or the Blackfeet in the eye and talk to the tribal leaders. He's, these guys on the expedition were in a hurry. They wanted to get home. So as a result, lots of trouble happened. And they were in parties as small as two and three. I mean, I don't think the, the, the natives were very intimidated by that. So it was probably a mistake to split up, but again, following orders from the boss, President Jefferson. These are the history changers, the three native tribes, the Spanish barb pony, and there's still Spanish barbed ponies down in southeast Montana in the Friar Mountains. They still find those bones with one less vertebrae in them. And we just invite you to uh, Traveler's Rest. There's tours today at 1.30. And uh, it's not only the authentic 
campsite, it's an ancient native crossroads, and it's also a nature sanctuary, an archaeology site. Thank you.